In his hotel room in New York City, Chaim Weitzman stared at the phone, willing it to ring. Eventually, it did. He answered, listened for a few moments, then gave his advice. Declare the state, he said, no matter what happens. Over a thousand years ago, a Spanish rabbi named Joseph Ibn Abator scribbled down a note. Whether he came up with it himself or had heard it elsewhere, we don't really know. The note said, Next year in Jerusalem. Rabbi Abator's short phrase, which today goes, it expressed a profound spiritual notion that had followed the Jewish people since the fall of Jerusalem in the first century of the Common Era. It was a geographic sentiment that someday the Jewish people would physically return to the land of their fathers and mothers to pray before the Divine Presence in the place where they had developed as a nation and a people. But his phrase also became an expression of an inner hope, what we might today call self-empowerment or self-determination, that in the city of Jerusalem, both its real location and in its place in the hearts of all the Jewish people, there would the Jews be able to fully live as self-determined Jews. Over the centuries, Lishana Haba'ah Yerushalayim became a part of the Jewish liturgy and is the last prayer said on major holidays like Yom Kippur and Passover. For centuries, Jews recited this prayer and kept the idea of Jerusalem on the daily, praying over and over that they, or their children, or their grandchildren, or some distant descendant whom they would never know, would get to return to Jerusalem. Many tried. Some made it, most never did. But beginning in the mid-1800s, in the darkness of European persecution and oppression, someone, somewhere, recited Lishana Haba'ah Be'Yerushalayim and suddenly heard in the phrase the sparking of a pinpoint of light. What if, they asked themselves, what if we really could return to Jerusalem next year? What if our time has finally come? And so what was to become the state of Israel was from the beginning an idea. This idea of actually making a return to Jerusalem, of ending the 2,000-year exile of the Jewish people from their ancient home, began to quietly circulate from shtetl to shtetl in Eastern Europe, one small Jewish village whispering it to the next across a swath of land a thousand miles long. It caught on with the intellectuals, thinkers like Moses Hess and Leon Pinsker, who broadened the idea and began writing what-if essays about how the Jewish people might live within a homeland of their own making. What would be the impact on a Jewish individual if his and her sense of self was transported from the impoverished oppression of Europe to the biblical land of boundless milk and honey, would not the Jew, afraid to be Jewish in Europe, be able to embrace their full selves in the land of Israel? Would not the Jew be freed from all strictures, 
Freed from the czarist abuse, the dominance of the Christian majority, the stern legalism of traditional Judaism. What wonders could the divine light of Eretz Yisrael, the sun in the land of Israel, the working of the soil, the building of a homeland, and the fellowship of their fellow Jews, what would all that do to the soul of the Jew? Maybe, just maybe, it was finally time to return home. In the second half of the 19th century, it was gradually possible for small numbers of Jews to make that journey. The technology of transportation and the financing available from rich Jews in Europe meant that the will of the Spirit could be realized with great hardship and perseverance. By the 1880s, thousands of Jews were making the journey to what was then called Palestine, inspired by the promise of spiritual and physical renewal. They joined the Jews who had never left the homeland in the intervening millennia, thousands of pious and pauperized Orthodox Jews living mainly in and around Jerusalem. These new pioneers confronted the austerity of a hard scrabble land, the malarial swamps, the emptiness of the desert, the lack of knowledge they had in how to grow things. Only a few managed to hang on, supported by the wealth of Jewish philanthropists in Europe like Baron de Rothschild. But those few who did set the example that inspired, slowly and gradually and not without opposition, millions more Jews throughout the continent. And so what was to become the state of Israel, which had begun as an idea, was transformed into an ideal. Writers and doers began considering what kind of society Jews would build, what sort of utopia was possible. People like Ahad Ha'am saw a renewed center of Jewish life and learning. A.D. Gordon saw a religion of labor, churning out strong Jews deeply connected to the land. Eliezer ben Yehuda saw a revival of the Hebrew language, nearly dead now for 2,000 years. Nearly all of them held a secular vision of the Jewish homeland, one not bounded by a strict interpretation of Jewish law, but governed instead by Jewish values, culture, and thought. So what were tiny plots of struggling land became collective farms, the kibbutz, the socialist paradise. Small neighborhoods turned into burgeoning cities of economic weight, including one built on a beach that the Jews named Tel Aviv. The pioneers merged Jewish knowledge and values with liberal Western ideals around equality, gender, market capitalism, socialism. And by then this movement was given a name, Zionism, whose name, Zion, is another name for ancient Jerusalem, reflecting the idea and the ideal about what it meant for the Jewish people to return, return with a capital R. And Zionism took those ideals and put them in practice throughout Europe, training young Jews for the day when they would leave their homes and head to the land of Israel to speak Hebrew, to farm, to build, to live. And then a journalist named Theodore Herzl saw what was happening and dreamt that the homeland being renewed could become a Jewish state, and he declared at the first Zionist Congress in 1897 that it would be so. And so what became the state of Israel? which began as an idea and then became an ideal, now also became a political entity, a hope that the Jewish people could create a nation amongst the community of nations. And the movement, with a capital M, took off. For a long time, though, in fact, not until the 1940s, did the Zionist movement declare as its goal the creation of an ethnically Jewish state in Palestine. 
In its early history, the leading Zionists felt that the Jewish homeland would either be a part of the Ottoman Empire or would be a binational state shared with the Arabs. It wasn't necessary, they thought, for the Jews to have their own separate state because as long as they had a protected colony, as long as they were autonomous in some designated homeland to live openly as Jews, that would be enough to ensure their survival. An ethnically Jewish state would probably not ever be necessary. It was in this mix of ideas and ideals and political hopes that the Zionist movement made its critical error. They looked at the farms they were tilling and the cities they were building and the Jewish homeland they were reviving, and they didn't want to see how all this would affect the people already living there for 1,500 years. It wasn't racism. It wasn't colonial exploitation. It was self-absorption. It was a relentless focus on the needs of the Jews. It was the false sense, especially from Theodore Herzl, that the prosperous society the Jews would build would be of such benefit to the Arabs that the Arabs would happily accept it. Because the Jews were envisioning a binational or multinational state rather than an exclusively Jewish one, it didn't occur to them that what was working well for the Jews from Europe wasn't what the Arabs wanted. And so the state of Israel that was born as an idea and an ideal and had achieved some element of political reality was also a land from the beginning of contradictions. It struggled to match its intentions of equal rights and self-determination for all with its emphasis on the exclusive needs of the Jews. Its sense of urgency overwhelmed the intention towards coexistence. Not everyone suffered from this blindness. Ahad Ha'am famously warned of the dangers of Jewish self-absorption from the beginning, insisting that the Arabs would not tolerate becoming marginalized people in their own land, that the Jews couldn't dismiss the needs of the Arabs without suffering a backlash. But the Zionists pressed onwards, ignoring or neglecting or outright rejecting that the Arabs were developing their own national idea about creating an Arab empire across the Middle East. But the intrusion of global politics impeded that effort. World War I brought about the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and its replacement in Palestine by the British one. In order to win the war, Britain had made conflicting promises it wasn't able to keep. To the Arabs regarding their national aspirations in Palestine, and most publicly to the Jews regarding theirs. The Balfour Declaration of 1917 was a phenomenal achievement of the Zionist movement, committing the British Empire to a policy of creating a Jewish homeland in Palestine, by carving out some territory that would be exclusive for Jewish self-determination while enabling open Jewish immigration. Arab nationalism, and what grew out of it to become the distinct identity of the Palestinian Arabs, the Palestinians, made its critical error beginning in the early 1920s. In their frustration and effort to thwart the Balfour Declaration and the influx of Jewish immigrants, the Arabs made a strategic decision from which they were never, to this day, able to fully turn back from. To meet the challenge of Zionism with violence. Led by power-hungry, anti-Semitic tyrants like Amin al-Husseini, the Arabs in Palestine reacted with violence to every British policy that in their view favored Jewish migration or the Jews' political position. The violence was often deliberately indiscriminate, what today we would understand as terrorism. The Arabs rose up in sporadic outbursts of feverish violence. In 1920 and 1921 and 1929, 
scorching entire Jewish communities before some uneasy peace was brokered and things calmed down. This violence spawned two developments amongst the Zionists, one in thinking and one in action. In Zionist thinking arose the urgent need for an organized system of self-defense. Vladimir Jabotinsky, perhaps the second most influential leader of the Zionist movement after Herzl, he recognized early in the 1920s that the Arabs would never accept the Jewish homeland in Palestine unless they were forced to. The way to achieve that, he wrote, was for the Jews to build an impregnable iron wall of such effective self-defense that the Arabs couldn't defeat them, and they would have no choice but to accept the Jewish presence. And this idea was turned into action. The Jews used their military experience during World War I to organize a central self-defense group called Haganah, meaning simply, the defense. But this militarizing caused rifts in the Zionist movement. The Haganah held as its main policy what was called Havlaga, or restraint, in which the Jews used their weapons only in self-defense and not to initiate attacks on the Arabs. But for many fighters, the iron wall of defense required a good offense, in which counterattacks or preemptive strikes had strategic value in deterring and punishing the Arabs. And those fighters split off to form the Haganah's rival, another defense group called the Irgun. What was to become the state of Israel then, an idea and an ideal, also had violence and militarization baked into its foundation. Military training became a part of ordinary life, guns became ordinary objects, night patrols and sentry duty became a part of the ordinary day. Jabotinsky's ideology of defense became essential for Jewish survival and that of the Zionist movement, for it was clear that Zionism could not exist without it. The Jewish homeland could never be a safe haven unless the Jews knew how to use their guns and how to use their training to defend themselves, because no one else would. Jabotinsky's ideology found greater justification in the savagery of the Arab revolt of the late 1930s, in which their anger at Jewish immigration and British support for the homeland found expression in three years of unrelenting violence against the Jews throughout Palestine. The Jews retaliated too against Arab civilians, the logic of the Bible's eye for an eye bringing misery and tragedy and anger and resentment. And when the British responded to their Arabs' violence by taking their side, by closing the doors of Palestine to further Jewish immigration just when Nazi Germany's murderous thugs were starting to fan out across Europe, the Jews in Palestine turned their anger on their colonialist overlords. With Jabotinsky dead, Menachem Begin took up the reins of the Irgun and unleashed its guerrilla tactics on the British in what Begin was proud to call a campaign of terrorism. With their brethren being murdered by the millions in Europe, the Jews came to see that the only way to save them was to establish a Jewish state with a Jewish majority so that the Jews could ensure the doors remained wide open for the desperate populations of Poland and Russia and the Ukraine and Italy and France and Germany and all the other countries that the continent was determined should be cleansed forever of the Jewish evil. But to live with all that violence, to commit that violence, to live with constant tragedy, meant that an aspect of Zionism became hardened, hostile, uncompromising. 
The right and the left diverged farther apart from one another. Partisan politics became stronger. Decisions became ever more contested. The fight for the Jewish state became harder and more desperate. Even when the British had had enough, even when they were broken by Begin's campaign of terrorism and the geopolitics of their collapsing empire, even when the United Nations voted in 1947 to create a Jewish state in Palestine, even then the violence continued unabated. Within hours of that UN vote, the great triumph of Theodore Herzl's political vision, the Arabs released such ferocity across Palestine and the Middle East that it seemed the Jews might not survive after all. And so what was to become the state of Israel, which began as an idea and an ideal, but also developed with the contradictions inherent in the competition of politics and national aspiration, became as well a state that was born with trauma. Violence and hostility, vulnerability and terror, violence that was brought to itself and violence that it brought upon others were already part of the national fabric before its declaration and remained so long after. What was to become the state of Israel was also a country defined by its personalities. Its dreamers like Theodore Herzl and Ahad Ha'am, its practical doers like Arthur Rupin and Chaim Weizmann, its hard-headed visionaries like Vladimir Jabotinsky and Menachem Begin. And unusual for any country that I can think of, and certainly in this time period, the Jewish state was defined by its women. Nation builders like Golda Meir, writers like Rachel the Poetess, pioneering women who moved to Palestine to farm and work and educate and build a society. And the warriors and the martyrs, Sarah Aronson, Haviva Reich, and Hannah Shenish, who gave their lives that their fellow Jews might live. And in Hannah Shenish's case, to be bestowed with all of the above ideals, in whose poetry and service millions of Jews find the new Jew, the Jew who defied the history of European persecution by making her body strong, by fighting back, by loving the land, by being secure in her Jewishness. Most of those I just named were not born in Palestine. They came from Europe. The nation that was an idea and an ideal and a political reality and a contradiction and a place of vulnerability and violence was also, in its early stages, a nation of mostly immigrants. People who were there not by accident of birth, but by conscious choice. They came with the idealism that makes people believe they can turn the land and turn themselves into something better. That through Zionism, like Hannah Shenish believed, that through Zionism they can join the continuum of history and make it anew. And above everyone else, there was one person, one personality, whose life seemed to define the coming Jewish state and in whose hands its fate was placed. David Ben-Gurion. When the Zionist movement was looking for kibbutz farmers, the young Polish Jew David Ben-Gurion came to farm. When it was looking for socialist labor leaders, Ben-Gurion stepped up. 
When it was looking for political activism, he was its leading activist. When it was looking to build institutions, he led them. When it was looking for military leadership, he was put in charge. And when it was looking to form a pre-state government, he was unquestionably its chief official. He wasn't Zionism's deepest thinker, or its bravest warrior, or its most charismatic diplomat. He had his faults and his petty grievances and his difficult personality, but he also had courage, dogged determination, the insight to see two steps ahead, and above all an iron will to conjure up and execute bold and dangerous decisions. Whether he was in the United States to ask the Jews for money, or visiting the refugee camps of Europe, to promise the traumatized Holocaust survivors that there would soon be a place for them in this world, Ben-Gurion became the emblem of Zionism, the figurehead of a Jewish homeland that was gaining in strength yet precariously situated, that held out so much hope and purpose, but was beset along the knife's edge of existence. The Zionists fought bitterly with one another, but ultimately looked to him to make the big decisions, to take the riskiest gambles, to judge at what cost would it be to make real Lishana Haba'ah Yerushalayim. He became the symbol of what it would take to go the final mile, what the Jews call chutzpah, nerve and grit and stubbornness and audacity. It came from a place deep in Jewish history. Thousands of years ago, when Abraham was given a mission to leave his home and go to the land of Canaan, he had a choice. He could stay in the city of Ur, in the house of his father, and live out his life in relative prosperity in what was then one of the great cities of the world. And then in death be consigned to the memory of his immediate family and his name lost to history. Or he could follow that voice, could leave home and venture into the desert towards an uncertain future, gambling his life and the lives of his loved ones that a great nation was indeed waiting for him and for them to start. Sometime later, Moses too faced a choice before the burning bush. He was ordered back to Egypt, where Pharaoh would very likely kill him, to free the Jewish slaves in whose name a higher power decided that their fate was not to suffer another 400 years of bondage in Egypt. He too gambled with their lives, betting everything that somewhere in the wilderness they would find redemption and begin a new history for themselves in the promised land. And in the first century of the modern era, the Jews of Judea rose in revolt against the Roman tyrants, betting their lives, their temple, and their religion on regaining their sovereignty to determine their own fate in their own land. But they lost, and they were exiled for nearly 2,000 years. Jewish history and the Jewish people were changed forever. And so at this moment, in May of 1948, David Ben-Gurion found himself amongst the giants, Abraham and Moses and King David and King Solomon and the Jewish rebels of old. No matter which decision Ben-Gurion made now, Jewish history would forever associate his name with the outcome. So what do you do? Do you fight or do you flee? Dream or dream not? Return to Europe, the place of death, or gamble everything on redemption and salvation? How do you choose to risk the lives of 600,000 Jewish men, women, and children on a plan that might not work? 2,000 years of Jewish exile had come down to this final hour. 
the Jewish people waited. They waited by makeshift foxholes in Palestine. They waited under siege in the alleyways of Jerusalem. They waited along the beach in Tel Aviv. They waited in the refugee camps of Europe and by the phone in their hotel room in New York City. They waited holding guns. They waited holding prayer books. They waited while preparing for Shabbat on Friday afternoon, May 14th, 1948. They held their breath and their hearts stopped and they waited for David Ben-Gurion to make the decision. Wow. Okay, well, that wraps up our second season here at You Ought to Know on the history of Zionism, which was less a season than like a year and a half long effort. And I still left out a ton of stuff. There's so much that I didn't cover. Now, the plan is to continue right along this path together. I'll be starting a new season on the history of Israel, picking up where we just left off with independence. It's going to take me a few months or so to get that up and running, but don't worry. I am not disappearing in the meantime. I have prepared what we might call a bit of lighter fare, a mid-afternoon snack break, if you will, before jumping back into the bigger feast of Israeli history. I'll still be talking about Jewish history, but not quite as dense as what you've been listening to. Instead, I've got about a dozen episodes or so on unsolved Jewish mysteries. Relics that have gone missing, ideas we're still looking for answers on, even a couple of, let's say, metaphysical things that don't really exist, or do they? So season three, Unsolved Jewish Mysteries, will be starting in just a few weeks, as soon as I get my act together. And in the meantime, you can always go to my website at jewoughtoknow.com. You'll find more content there, and I'm also plugging away at a big website redesign, so hopefully look for that in the coming months. And if you like pretty pictures of Israel, you can follow me on Instagram at jewoughtoknow, and the same thing for Twitter. Again, just go to the website, and you'll find the social media links right there at the top. And as always, thank you all so much for listening to Jew I Don't Know. It is a lot of work, but almost always fun and definitely always interesting for me. So I very much hope that you feel both informed and entertained. Very special thanks to the entire staff at the Pete's Coffee near my house. Probably 80% of what you hear in this podcast, maybe more, gets written there. And that team runs a great store. Very comfortable. I highly recommend getting the Berry Crumble pastry. So that's it. Talk to you again in a few weeks when we kick off season three on Unsolved Jewish Mysteries. As always, I'm your host, Jason Harris. You've been listening to Jew Ought to Know. Lehitraut. See you later. <laughs> Thank you.